Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This series contains references to death and trauma associated with the Canterbury earthquakes and may be upsetting to some listeners. I was sitting in my office and my youngest, who's eight years old, had been nagging me to come and see her at Curie 2 Pool. This is Phil Cumley. His daughter Courtney's been going to the pool with her school since the start of February. The sports complex, which was built for the 1974 Commonwealth Games, is on Travis Road in North New Brighton. So I left the office and I suppose I arrived at the pool around half past 12. I sat down and, and I went into the 25 metre pool area. Courtney's already arrived on the school bus. And once we got there, we got in the changing rooms and we got changed. And then we waited for the classrooms to finish and then we went to go swimming. I sat down on these short stands, there's only about three tiers, and the children were all in the 25 metre pool. And we were doing with the roller scoop because it was there going to go on the boat. And the teacher was so pleased that the roller scoops were in the life jacket those days. There were, I'm reflecting, approximately 60 kids in the pool. We sat there and I suppose 12.51 hit and bang. And then bang it hit once we just finished doing something. And, of course, all I could see was the waves going up and down. When I looked up, the concrete roof of that pool, I'm guessing, is 6 to 12 inches thick, and I honestly thought I was going to die. February 22nd, for me, started like any other normal day. Ken Hurd cycles to work most days. He's a maintenance engineer at a fish processing factory in Wollston, about three kilometres southeast of the Christchurch CBD. It was drizzling in the morning, wore the raincoat to work and didn't expect anything untoward. Then I was having a lunch break, then at 12.51, then an almighty earthquake. And little did I know how that would change my life. He's sitting in the cafeteria when it hits. I got thrown off the chair onto the floor and then when it stopped, um, my part in attending to people in the factory and the needs of the factory environment. I'd sent a text to my wife at about two o'clock to say that I was okay. Work was a mess, but I was okay, so that, that was good. He leaves work on his bike, travelling with a workmate. We actually cycled into town up Ferry Road, not realising the situation was actually getting worse. It wasn't until we got to Barbados Street and we could see that the Catholic Cathedral, the front had fallen off there, that we really started to realise what was happening. Going up Barbados Street, I remember by that time the day was starting to sort of be a little bit grey, the light shower was coming over and there were people just going every direction possible. and. All I can remember hearing is the odd sound of a helicopter and a siren 
There was smoke coming from the city, but there were no voices. It was just like we're in a war zone, just like you see on a film where people are in shell shock. They get back to Ken's house, and his friend heads home, not far away. And my place was quite a mess. The chimney was lying on the roof. There was stuff everywhere inside. And because we've got no dependent children at home, I thought I'll just go and check the neighbours, then I'll head off and see where my wife was. And obviously the best thing to do was ride because the roads and the people were such a mess. So I finished checking some neighbours, and then there was one that I realised I needed to go and see. Headed off that direction, and that's the last thing I remember. I'm Katie Gossett, and I said at the start of this series, we've all got a story, those of us who were in Christchurch on the day. And in a relatively small city, we found that many of our stories overlap. These interviews were all independently recorded just a few months after the quake. But what strikes me when we listen back is how many of these people cross paths. People who don't know each other end up in the same place, in some cases even helping each other out. And that's why we've called this Fragments. Everyone's story is another piece of the puzzle, and episode by episode we've been putting them together to make a bigger story, a fuller record of the 6.3 magnitude earthquake on February the 22nd, 2011. I have my own story from that day. I'm at the Palms. It's a shopping mall on New Brighton Road in the east of the city. And by about quarter to one, in the moments just before the quake, I'm in a shoe shop deep inside the mall. I have my baby with me in a buggy. She's at this stage about 10 months old. And while I've never done a formal interview about my earthquake experience, I do have this live report filed to RNZ on the day. And we can cross to our reporter Katie Gossett, who's in Christchurch, and she joins us now. Good afternoon, Katie. Hi, how are you? (laughs) (laughs) Good, thank you. Now, whereabouts are you and, and what is it that you can see? Well, I'm in Linwood now. Now, when the earthquake actually struck, I was in the Palms Mall, which is in Shirley, which is, um, so yeah, Shirley, Dellington, an area that was um, reasonably hit by the last earthquake. And it was, uh, yeah, it was a pretty frightening affair, I have to tell you. Um, I was in there with a small baby and a pram, and I was inside a shop in the mall, and, and literally things just tumbled on top of us. I sort of, you know, obviously stretched over the top of the pram kind of thing and glass fell on top of me and I've got a bit of a gash in my leg. I don't even know what hit me. It feels strange to hear it again ten years later and I can hear the tension in my voice. I can tell that I've been shaken, just like everyone else. There were a lot of people just looking at me thinking that I've... But I just thought, well, I've got to do something here. They were looking at me for guidance. You couldn't see any grass, you couldn't see any track. It was completely covered with water and liquefaction. I thought, we're going to die, let's die together. It was awful. I thought I'd never see him again. I thought that was it for him. They all stopped to help. And what they gave me was, they gave me back to my family. Episode 6, The East. It was a normal day at Kiwi too. Lejapur was under maintenance, so we didn't have too many people in that day. Uh, we had a school and a training pool. We just had a general general day. This is Warren, an operations manager at QE2. 
At 12.51, he's just finished having lunch with his partner. I remember just moving to my office doorway. That's the closest sort of serious doorway in our facility. I had uh, three of our other office staff and my partner was running down the hallway and I was yelling at her just to stand still and come back. Uh, and then she came back and told me she was out of here. So, uh, But by the time we'd actually got past that point, it had actually stopped. Warren looks around. A large crack has appeared in the floor in front of him and the lintel above him is also split. At that stage, I still didn't know we'd lost our power, so I still didn't know how serious it was. It wasn't until I got out into the hallway and saw people running. And then at that point, our major things for us is lost power with water and obviously things falling. So once we actually got out into the main reception area and you can see the lights, the light fittings are down, um, a lot of the ceiling tiles are down. At that point there, I walked over to the call point and pulled the call point for evacuation. I was actually in the gym. I'd just come back from lunch, so I looked around and there wasn't many people in there. Warren's colleague Lisa, a personal trainer. I just went back and finished a programme that I'd been writing up. And, yeah, then just hit and shunted me really to the doorway. And that's where I just braced myself, just honestly couldn't do anything else. Um... And then, I suppose, within five seconds, the the ceiling came down. And that, you know, not just tiles, the whole thing is is one complete unit. And so the noise associated with that um, was really, really scary. And I just remember thinking, if if we can just get to the end of this, this would be great if if nothing else comes down. And just looking at the, the concrete columns, they were just fluid. And then it did it did stop and I couldn't see anyone because the ceiling was down. Um, so I think I recorded the fastest 10 metre sprint to the <laughs> to get to the fire exit to make sure that that was open so people could get out. Because the clients who were there have been saved by the gym equipment. Thankfully there was a lot of space our fitness equipment being so strong and generally around head height. So when the ceiling came down, it was able to rest on that. So that did create a lot of um, space. But I did see one gentleman struggling to come through, and when he got to the edge of the mat, then he collapsed, and we had another lady on a row machine, and very lucky really lucky because the ceiling balanced on the arms of the treadmill and the bikes behind and the rows were in between. So that provided enough, just enough, for her really not to be crushed. Another regular client suffers a concussion. Fortunately, doctors at Active Health and on-site medical practice can help anyone who needs it. Here's Warren again. The ambulance came in and took our 200 people away at that stage, a lot of other staff had minor bruises or sprains and, and we just deemed those as not a, an emergency at that stage. Um, so we just dealt with them as we could. But over at the QE2 pool, the water has built up into a tidal wave. Phil Cumley jumps out of the stand and runs to get to his daughter Courtney. As I got to the end of the pool, the waves were at their crescendo. I grabbed at one of the children there and she came at me and I'm I'm approaching six foot 
and she was at neck height. I leant forward to get to her and she took, she went flying back again. She came in a second wave at me and as I put my hand out, I did grab her at neck height and that I remember, this little girl, arms and legs out, screaming at me and I grabbed her and threw her out of the pool. And all I could hear was like a, like a truck going through the building. Um, one of the lights came down and when my friend was going on the waves that are going so high, she felt the light bulb kick her leg. Several other children were, were tidal waved out of the pool. It weren't any major injuries because around the pool, within a matter of seconds, water started to fill up and we had a buffer of a foot or so, so they were landing into that. And then I looked over and there was a boy um, struggling to get out because of course all the water was going out of the pool and staying on the side, like it was flooded. But still, Phil can't reach Courtney. My main aim for leaving the stand was to head for my own child. I thought, we're going to die, let's die together. And he tries again. I, I looked, I couldn't get her, I pulled children, I couldn't get her. After I grabbed the little girl in the big wave, the whole thing stopped. The earthquake stopped. It stopped and all you could hear was screaming, screaming, screaming. The waves started to get smaller and smaller and smaller. But there were still waves coming through from the little kids' pool. We all go on about the noise. The noise was massive. For probably a couple of seconds, there was surreal silence. There was nothing. And I was standing there, just in awe, and this little hand touched my hand. And I looked down, and she looked up at me, and she said, Hi, Daddy. I nearly melted. For one moment, everything is fine. And then, bang, you've got 60-plus eight-year-old kids who were screaming during the earthquake, who have now stopped screaming and then started again. Um, there were children running everywhere. I had them clinging to my legs. We were trying to get them out of the pool area. I mean, even the parents were all in a panic. It was a terrible state. For myself, I started on our own evacuations. Warren's mission is to clear everyone out of the sports facility. Make sure the pool was evacuated, make sure all our change of rooms, all our partners were out. We didn't have too many issues with that, but on my journeys I saw some pretty serious damage as I was, as I was heading. And for once, even the usual lingerers don't muck around. When we evacuate our facility, we always have a couple that just don't want to go, and we always have that situation. And I remember going through the men's change room and then out to the family change room area um, to get a nods up from my uh, my pool staff because the cell phones were down. That they'd evacuated their entire area, and uh, at that point there, a guy popped his head out of the family change room and said, oh, "Is it serious?" And there's just a big crack in the floor. And he's when he saw that, I couldn't keep up with him as he ran out the building. But most people are already on the move. I remember standing there with one of my colleagues trying to slow the kids down and they were coming out of the training pool. They were just in their talks, they were running, they were yelling, screaming. They got to the front door and stopped dead. Right outside our front door, there's quite a bit of damage on the on the pavement, so they stopped there. So we had uh, other staff members moving them outside the door. Warren's colleague Lisa is helping. When we got out into the clear space, getting everyone away from the building, um, and it was really methodical, we could see everyone was... Um, who was in charge, had, you know, their necessary and they were marking things off and directing and making yourself, oh, thank God, they're not calmer than me. Then I heard that the pine gourd had come down and and I knew people in that building and something about a bus had been crushed and, and it was like, oh, you know, because you knew it was big. 
February 22nd, 2011, started like any day in our house. It was up early, the children were away. This is Andrea Robinson. She's a nurse and midwife at St George's Hospital. My daughter just started high school, girls high, so she was off early on the bus. My son uh, was starting later because that day the, the secondary school teachers were having a union meeting, so they either started late or finished early. But Andrea has a day off work, so she's arranged to do some shopping. Her daughter is finishing school at midday and they plan to meet for lunch. So Andrea heads to the Palms shopping mall. And I was shopping in, of all places, Pumpkin Patch, which I never go to anymore, but colleagues at work had just had babies. So I was right in the back of Palms Mall. Her daughter texts to say her plans have changed and she'll be coming to the mall slightly later. So Andrea carries on. And then... The quake hits. I was in the back of the pumpkin patch. Everything fell down around us. I'm at the Palms too at this exact moment. As things fall down, I remember heading out through the main part of the mall, something I'll later explain in my live cross. People started to to panic, to push their way out, you know, obviously out of shops and towards the exits of the mall. And as we went, you know, there was debris in our path. Literally, there were bits of the wall and things had come down. A woman helped me haul my pram over some of the debris. And, and as we went towards the exit, there was just a shower of tiny fragments of glass that were just strewn everywhere, basically. Andrea's racing towards an exit too. And, you know, I've talked a lot about people crossing paths in this series. And then I hear this. I heard people screaming, lots of dust, lots of glass crashing. I looked around the shop. There were very, there was nobody in there except one mother with a little baby in a pushchair. I couldn't see any shop assistants. They'd gone. And this woman said to me, what do we do? And I just picked up the front of her pram and said, we're getting out of here. Listening to Andrea's interview, I obviously wonder, is she the woman who helped me lift my pram? I was in the mall alleyway, just in front of the pumpkin patch shop. I'll probably never know if it was me or someone else, but I am almost certainly one of the young mothers she sees trying to get out of the building. People were rushing all over the place, the glass from the shops were just crashing. Lots of people, and I decided we'd go straight out the main doors near um, Paper Plus and out into the open car park. So I got her on her way, there were lots of other young mums and their little children. So we all head outside. And we just waited over on the far side of the footpath in the open part of the car park near New Brighton Road. There were aftershocks continuing, took a long time before there was anybody with a warden jacket or any control over anything. It just was mayhem and chaotic for people with blood and cuts and everything. I end up stopping beside what's probably the same group of people with injuries who are clustered around a first aid kit and someone gives me a sticking plaster for my cut. Certainly at the mall where I was, I saw uh, at least a couple of people who were clearly injured, you know, one man covered in blood and being treated by first aiders, that kind of thing. And then after another significant aftershock, we noticed that there were a lot of um, liquefaction coming out from the road and it was just a mess and just lots of traffic and lots of noise. Andrea starts to get delayed texts from her family. Her son is still at school, but safe there. Her daughter and a friend have ended up in Latimer Square, and her husband, a police officer, is somewhere in town. I got a text from him to say he was okay, and I didn't hear from him again until early hours the following morning, really. And so Andrea waits in the car park. 
there were a lot of teenagers in the car park and they were I recognised some of them from my daughter's primary school last year. They just wanted hugs and just to see somebody that they knew. So I just told them to stay together and, and a lot of just other people just left. I wait there myself in the Palms car park and I feed my baby before heading off for home. But when I try to leave, I can't turn right because New Brighton Road is full of liquefaction and the traffic that is heading right is at a complete standstill. And so I turn left instead. It's my only option and I hope that at some point I'll find a shortcut that will let me get back in the right direction. But Andrea's car is stuck. My car was on top of the building. So I couldn't leave. So people were just, took it took ages. We were sitting there for hours, you know, it seemed like hours, a couple of hours probably. Or an, yeah, it would have been. And about, probably about half past two, three o'clock, I can't remember the time, somebody came running down the road looking for a medic or medical person or somebody to help them. And I said, I'm a midwife and I'm a nurse, can I help? She said, yes. And we took off running back down New Brighton Road, um, about 100 metres. Myself and another ambulance officer took a vehicle and we were tasked to sort of the east side of Christchurch, which was an eye-opener. This is Brent Williams from St John Ambulance. The Aranui area, Bromley, and that at the time was just a wash with water, a surge, big sinkholes in the road. There's traffic going into Brighton and traffic coming out of Brighton. It was congested, so I'm not sure where everyone thought they were going, but there was a lot of cars driving around aimlessly. And some cars have been upended in the liquefaction. You could just see the boots sticking out of the road, so they'd driven into a sinkhole. It makes you wonder whether they they got out or not. Driving through the Aranui area, I couldn't believe the the devastation in an area that was already hit by other economic restrictions, I suppose you could say. Um, And it seemed unfair that they were awash in sewerage that was at least half a metre deep. It also makes it hard to get an ambulance through. We got sort of stuck in the area that we couldn't get out and we had to backtrack along footpaths and people's front yards just to get our ambulance out. We stopped at a community centre there and there's quite a gathering of people and they were wondering when help was going to arrive and I said, you know, just to hang in there and try and keep out of the dirt, keep warm, hopefully someone will turn up and offer you some hope or help. At the nearby QE2 sports facility, keeping people warm is also a concern. Here's Lisa, a personal trainer from the gym. We had lots of children in the pool, and they were coming out, and as you could appreciate, they were wet. Um, They just had towels around them, they were traumatised, and the staff must have been... I mean, with all that responsibility, they did an awesome job to get those kids and the teachers up to to the grass area. And that, I think, was potentially our biggest potential for real harm, was those children sitting there. Because I don't know if you remember the day, but it was um, overcast and there was quite a cool wind coming through. And these children sitting there, um, it was a recipe for disaster. Courtney Cumley is one of those children, cold and surrounded by liquefaction and water. Even outside the building it was flooding and then we just saw liquefaction bubbling up as we were trying to get out of the building and then we ran out from the building and we felt that big aftershock and of course um, we were just right next to the QE2 building and we just saw it shake and 
then the instructors gave us this warm sort of like um, grey blanket and we wrapped that around in groups. The weather started to change and it started to get quite cold. Warren realises that something needs to be done to warm the kids up. So we made the decision that three of our senior staff would enter the building, uh, back into the training pool and grab these kids' clothes. We couldn't keep them there forever. So we entered, re-entered the building and, and what we saw at that point was alarming. Basically we just ran in there, grabbed all their stuff, threw it on a tarpaulin and then dragged it out, dragged it off to a safe area and then carried it from that point to where we, we set up our, our station for these kids, got them all dressed. The children need to get back to school, but how? The phones are out and they can't reach the school. Courtney's dad, Phil Cumley. The bus had dropped them at the pool, it wasn't coming back. The children were starting to freeze. Phil decides to go and get his car. A couple of kilometres away, Andrea has just left the Palms. She's run down New Brighton Road because she's been told someone needs help. And apparently a man had been cycling and somebody had saw him go over the handlebars and landing on his head. He must have um, biked into a hole with liquefaction that opened up. Turns out the man she's come to help is Ken Hurd. He's unconscious, but later tries to make sense of what's happened. I pieced it back together later that when I was riding along New Brighton Road, there was an aftershock and I went down into a hole and hit my head. I ended up with a broken neck and consequently a spinal injury. And I was so fortunate for the people that came along and helped me. One of them is driving right behind him. And she saw it happen right in front of her eyes. So she was first on the scene to help. Another woman had just arrived home by foot because her car had gone down a liquefaction hole in another road. She had grabbed a survival backpack out of a car that she carries all the time. She arrived home at the exact time that this happened. So she um, was... person that went down to the Palms shopping mall, asked if there was anybody there that could possibly help, and down at the mall she found a nurse who came back and helped. So when I got there, there were a lot of people around. New Brighton Road was so busy with traffic, it was almost gridlocked, but it was just slowly moving. Andrea Robinson. And there were a lot of people just looking at me, thinking that I've but I just thought, well, I've got to do something here. They were looking at me for guidance. Ken is lying on his back, covered in blankets. When I saw him, he was blue from the neck up. He still had his cycle helmet on. He was breathing but gasping. I checked his pulse. He had a pulse. His arms were straight out beside him, sort of splayed out. He was pale all over. I checked him quickly. He had no signs of bleeding anywhere. And I thought, well, perhaps... He's either got a head injury, neck injury, maybe a chest injury, but there was no other sign other than his blue neck. Andrea needs to get his helmet off. Because he was occluding his airway a little bit, so I just carefully slipped that off and just, he carried on breathing but was gasping. I looked in his mouth, he could see that he had a partial plate, but he was still breathing. Then he stopped breathing. So... I just went into what I normally have done and trained for doing, I suppose. He needed an airway, so I 
decided instead of lifting his head back, like most of the time people do, just did a jaw thrust and brought his jaw forward to hopefully clear his airway. His plate had come dislodged and stuck in his tongue, so I had to get that out. And then I gave him five breaths and he started breathing again. He still had a weak pulse, but he fortunately had a pulse because probably looking back later after what I found out weeks later, probably if I had to do chest compressions, he wouldn't have lived. But anyway, at this stage, he was breathing again. There were a lot of people around and they were trying to ring 111. There was no reply from anywhere. Somebody runs down the road to see if they can get some oxygen from a nearby retirement home. There was a quarter of a tank of a little bottle, so it was very little, but we put that on him and somebody finally got through to 111 and I was able to talk to a doctor in Wellington. The doctor wants Andrea to put Ken in the recovery position and get him to hospital. So I told him at this stage there was no way he was moving and we couldn't do any of the things that he wanted. I really didn't want him to move him at all. He was pink, he was breathing, he was just unconscious, but I was okay with that. And a policeman arrived, so I handed the phone to him so I didn't have to talk to the doctor anymore because I thought, no, I would do, can't do anything else. The nurse played a key part in actually helping me that day because at the time that she got to me, I was blue and I'd stopped breathing. So she gave me mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and another person at that time had also gone and got some oxygen from a nearby rest home. With the aid of that, I then started to get a bit of colour back. So undoubtedly what those people did that day saved me. But they need to somehow move him and get him to hospital. And then, I don't know how long later, what short time later, a police four-wheel drive truck arrived and six policemen came out of the back of it. And they were great, they were my heroes right then. A special tactics police group arrived on the scene. They took charge of the situation and because there were no external injuries to me, everybody started to realise it was possible back, spine, neck injury, and I was treated accordingly. Um, With the Special Tactics Police Group, they realised that their stretcher was of no use, so they got a door from a person's house and, and strapped me onto that. Don't think they had to take it off the house, but it was lying around, so we could use that as a stretcher. And um, that came back and we log-rolled him, um, the, the man lying on the road, log-rolled him on the door as a makeshift stretcher. We strapped him to the stretcher and he was placed in the back of this police truck with his feet hanging out the door. Policeman, somebody was holding his head, somebody was holding the other sides of the door. So there were six policemen holding this door with the... the um, back of the truck up, door open, and that's last I saw. He was driving away. They were taking him to Latimer Square. The last they saw of me was strapped to the door, hanging out the back of a police four-wheel drive and being taken away. And I know that those people didn't expect a good outcome. I honestly didn't think he would live. I thought 
Well, that's it. I did know his first name. I couldn't remember his surname. But I thought, oh, in the next few days, I just kept an eye out to see if we saw any death notices. It was awful. I thought I'd never see him again. I thought that was it for him. All this time, Ken's wife Sue has no idea what has happened to him. I had text Ken to see if he was okay, and he had text back to say that he was okay, work was a mess, um, and then I text the other children, we've got two that live out of town. That happens just after the quake, so Sue assumes all is well. She works as a teacher aide at a primary school and stays there until late afternoon when the last child is picked up. By that time I left work and followed another teacher because we lived on the east side, which is the worst area, and um, she, so she was safe as well. And we got about two-thirds of the way home and then I branched off to go to my house and had to drive through floods and, and that sort of thing to get home. Uh, got home and Ken hadn't been home. So I checked the house and just decided to wait and text him several times to see if he'd left work, etc. A short distance away at QE2, Phil is about to start navigating the flooded streets himself. His daughter and her classmates are cold after being in the pool and he needs to get them back to school. I ended up doing three trips. Um, we had approximately 15 kids in my car each time. We had other cars turn up in the end taking them back to the school. The biggest problem I had after that was, as we're driving down the road, I can't see the road, it's full of water. I can see the odd car that's gone into a hole, and I'm thinking, 15 kids in this car, if we go into this hole, or into a hole, we're never going to get out. He decides to copy what the car in front of him is doing. I remember just watching his wheels, thinking, follow his lines, follow his lines, because he didn't know what had opened up or what was going to open up. We got the kids back to the school, and um, I th- and that was about it, I suppose. But back at QE2, Warren still has work to do. He needs to figure out just what the damage has been. As we're walking around the facility, we are starting to see this is a little bit more serious. I got round to my ground staff. They said at that point there, we'd started to hear reports that buildings were down. Looking across the grounds, the number two ground, the main stadium, you couldn't see any grass, you couldn't see any track. It was completely covered with water and liquefaction. And inside the buildings, water is everywhere. We lost about two feet of water off the top of the dive well, maybe a bit more, and that just flowed down through the buildings, broke a lot of the pipes and the rest of it, so obviously water flowed out um, where it shouldn't have been. So a lot of the grates flew across the room. The pressure that they were put under, water absolutely flowed everywhere, flowed out all the doors, flowed out through past the calf, down the lift well, down the stairs and onto the ground floor level. Um, All the canoes were, were all off. Once they fell over, they floated everywhere. Two of Warren's staff get caught up in the flooding. Our engineer was down in the ballast tank of the leisure pool, which was closed. It's a big concrete room uh, with one uh, sort of exit with a ladder. He was down there at the time, and uh, he's he's not a young man, but he they said that's the fastest I've seen him move for years. 
as he came up out of that ladder, one of our staff was in the tunnels um, underneath the pool. So once we started the cracking of the side of the pools, water started flowing in there. Uh, he's lost the power and his cell phone torch was the only way he was able to find his way out. When I spoke to him not long after, he was still seriously jittery. He, We've only just got him back in the building now. He's gone back in to retrieve a few of um, his things from the building. So it's taken him a good six months to actually go, OK, I can go back down there. Warren and his staff spend the afternoon contacting employees, ensuring everyone has got out of the facility. By this stage, most people, including members of the public, have rushed away from the complex, trying to get home and find family. But Brent and his St John colleague are still struggling through the eastern streets, trying to offer medical care and some reassurance. So mostly jobs that you'd expect to go to on a normal day, but they were brought on by the earthquake, people with shortness of breath angina-type chest pain, which has been exacerbated by the, you know, the big fright they'd had. The sad thing was there's nothing we could do for these people, and we basically gave them a bit of a management plan, the ones that could follow it, um, the others that we, we could get family there to sort of help out, and they were basically left. As the triaging system typically in a hospital takes the most acute people or likely to deteriorate people first and then um, on a normal day, we would take these people in and they'd be uh, categorised as uh, relatively urgent to see. So at this stage, we said there was really nowhere we could take you. Um, and the time it would take to get into town, um, you know, it was, it was really against it. They were better off where they were using their own medications and things like that. So we went back to the Latimer Square and we were given a tasking to go around to the PGC building to take some medications around there. Around this time, I'm also leaving Brighton, making an incredibly slow journey home. And after helping Ken Hurd, Andrea Robinson is doing the same thing. It took me ages. I walked all the way down Martians Road. My son tried to come and collect me, but because there was a delay in texts, he was halfway home the other way and God passed me and he hadn't seen me. So I just carried on walking and I walked down Martians Road, along QE2 Drive towards Parklands, and somebody picked me up um, after a while and got me a bit closer to home, but I just had to wade home really through liquefaction and things by my mother's. It took quite a long time. It took us about till half past seven at night before most of our family was back together. I left Kiwi Two at about 10.30 that night. Warren can finally go home once everyone else who's been at the complex has left. We had to secure the building as best we could. We were just screwing doors shut and we'd worry about that later. I remember driving home that night and there's a guy running, so I just pulled over in the council car as I was driving and uh, picked him up and he was on his way to his parents' place. He'd come from Ferrymead and had got stuck halfway, overheated his car, so he'd run that far. And so I picked him up and took him all the rest of the way and then, then drove home from there. By 10.30, I just sort of turned everything off Sue Hurd's getting ready for bed, but she still doesn't know where her husband Ken is. thought, well, maybe he's, um, because he helps at work, he's got caught up at work helping somebody else. So I just sort of decided that he couldn't, couldn't get home. 
their oldest son lives in Rickerton. He comes around and suggests that Sue stay with him and his partner overnight. So I left a cell phone and, and that sort of thing at the house in case Ken didn't have his and went to his place for the night. And they um, and basically we sat up and watched movies and things like that because neither of us could sleep. And we couldn't get through to Red Cross and we couldn't get through to anybody at that stage. Um, we had been trying all afternoon. They returned first thing in the morning. And there were still no messages and no sign of Ken. So we started to organise things uh, as far as all of us being on phones and anything we could get hold of to try and contact Civil Defence and Red Cross, etc. Across town at Christchurch Hospital, Ken finally regains consciousness. I woke up five o'clock in the morning. I was in the public hospital. Had no idea how I got there. I've been told that I've been picked up from a triage unit in Latimer Square, and that didn't it didn't make any sense. I've been home. How did I get back to Latimer Square? I couldn't move. All I could do at that point was move my lips and blink, and I didn't know what was happening. And they just told me that um, that I had a spinal injury when I asked who my wife was, and they said that they hadn't contacted her. It wasn't until about one o'clock that day that she finally got a message as to where I was. So for my wife, when she arrived home on the day of the 22nd, the darkness came that night. I hadn't arrived home. The next morning, um, yeah, the next morning she still didn't know where I was. She had to let people know that, hey, your dad, you know, your dad, your son, my husband, you know, just hasn't arrived, huh? So after that, by one o'clock in the afternoon, we got a phone call from the hospital to say he was in the hospital with a back injury and that we couldn't see him until four o'clock in the afternoon. So we gathered the kids and two of our children um, live in Ashburton, so they came into town and we all went to the hospital at four and saw him there. And at that stage he was um, totally paralysed, but he was conscious, although he was on morphine. And then the next day, I was allowed to stay till 11. And then the next day um, he got transferred to Burwood Hospital. So. He went there and he was on oxygen and a neck brace and that's when he got put in the halo, etc. I then spent four weeks in traction with a halo bolted to my head and weights hanging off the back. Spent four weeks like that on my back. Nurses at Burwood turning me every three hours to um, make sure all was well and being spoon-fed. I stayed there, I just moved a mattress in and wasn't leaving for three weeks. Um, after three weeks, where he could just move a finger and that was it. So I was told that um, he was lucky not to be on a ventilator, that he may never walk again and he was lucky to be alive because he had died at the scene. But we didn't know that, we just knew that, you know, he was alive and that's it. From there, it's another seven weeks in a halo jacket for Ken, with braces holding his neck in place. Slowly he begins to walk again. I then 
had to completely learn everything from here down, every body function, every movement, and that was taught back at Burwood. In the meantime, Sue is back and forth to the hospital, juggling family life and the clean-up at home. I had a special needs son who was up in Wellington at that time, so he came home. And then really just um, my routine was going to the hospital in the morning and, and going home at night and um, getting... Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and um, that was a routine really for, you know, for a couple of months. <laughs> and then... Um, Thank God he slowly progressed and got onto his feet and he moved more and more and um, got stronger. And, um, the, I mean, the hospital was amazing. They supported us as well as him. And um, we were very lucky that um, he was a walker. He ended up getting the use of his legs, etc. cetera, um, especially having broken his neck in three places. It was unusual. It got to stage where, you know, he didn't need me as much, which is good. He, he learned to be more independent and do things domestically, which was really good. <laughs> Cooking and things like that. Um, and then eventually came home. So it's a matter of we've been ad adapting. <laughs> Sorry. The morning after the quake, Warren returns to QE2 with some of his staff. He doesn't enter any buildings, but he secures them again, knowing it will be a long time before anyone is back. Knowing, in fact, that the facility's future is now uncertain. For the size of our facility, the age of it, yeah, we were lucky. But she's a, we describe her as a good old girl because she stood up pretty well considering what's happened to her more than once now. Yeah, so the future of QE2 is unknown, but for our staff, a lot of them have moved on to other things. All my staff, I had about 15 or 16 under me. At that time, they were all re-employed. And as a city council employee, Warren's needed elsewhere. That afternoon, we were called into town, into the art gallery, all our sort of senior staff, and we were put on projects to deal with, help with the recovery. The project I was put on, I was sort of with the, one of the welfare managers for civil defence and we were looking at opening up welfare centres so we had to go and assess them before the engineers could get in there, give them a safe route, all the bridges were out, uh, Cal Stadium was one, Pioneer, Burnside, uh, Windsor School. So we just went around assessing those and, and then from there once we got one and they got the engineers in to check it and say yes we can use it, our job then was to get the various groups to those facilities. And a day or so later, he gets taken inside the damaged part of the CBD, what becomes known as the red zone. And I was just amazed at what I saw. I couldn't believe that it, this happened to our city. So, yeah, and just from there, we just took day by day, you know, just dealing with what came up, whatever the council needed us to do. As the days pass and the city recovers, Ken Hurd is recovering too, and he starts to think about how he's made it to hospital alive. I said to my wife and my son, I, I said, I need to find out who these people were. Ken's not really a public kind of person, but he decides that if he needs to put his picture in the newspaper, 
That's what he'll do to find the people who saved his life. As it turned out, my son actually worked with this representative from the company that was first on the scene. So through contact with her, she found the person that arrived on foot. And then the story in the local paper uncovers another fragment, another piece of the puzzle. The gentleman that had got the oxygen for me from the rest home rang me up and said, I helped you that day, here's my number, contact me if you wish. I contacted this gentleman, I've met him, and it's quite emotional when you meet people like that because you don't know how you're going to react, but for this man to actually see that what he had done on that day three months earlier was enough to help someone survive because he didn't think I would make it until a photo came in the paper and a friend texted him and said, hey, here's your story in the paper. So, yeah, very emotional when you meet people like that, to shake their hands and thank them. And then finally he meets Andrea. I had told my story to my work colleagues and a couple of weeks later one of them phoned me and said, I've heard your story from somebody else. Turns out her colleague's son and Ken's son have been flatting together. And the stories came together and then um, Ken's wife phoned me and I met him and I went into Burwood Hospital and met him and it was incredible. We found out he had fractured C1, C2 and C7 which is like they often call it the hangman's fractures. Very few people live through it and if they do they're often tetraplegic. And yet despite Ken's injuries, in the end after weeks of rehabilitation he walked out of there. So we're all very grateful that he's walking. It's just incredible. What I realised was what those people on that day, the, the people that stopped, they all had their own problems and places they were trying to get. They all stopped to help. And what they gave me was they gave me back to my family. Without a doubt, these people saved my life that day. I, I would not have survived at the accident scene without what these people did. Ten years on, Ken Hurd and Andrea Robinson are still in touch. Andrea says rescuing Ken was a team effort and everyone played a part. Her recall of the day and the rescue is sharp and precise. February the 22nd, 2011 was an interesting day, she says. Well, I guess it's one of those things that ten years on you can look back in different ways. If you'd asked me the question... Um, immediately following it would have been totally different um, but looking back um, there were a lot of other things going on in our lives, um, our family lives at that time with uh, sick um, relatives and other things so it was just another thing to manage but it was really surreal because we'd never come across anything like that and of course by the time I was helping Ken and managing that situation I, I started off, I was in the Palms Mall, in the back of the Palms Mall in a shop waiting for my daughter and the earthquake struck. So everything around me, all of the shop windows just smashed. There was, you know, evacuation sirens going, a lot of people, a lot of, I described it later, mayhem at the mall because it was just, nobody knew what to do or where to go. And we just helped each other to get out of the place and into the car park. And so it's just one of those things. And I guess looking back, 
that um, there were a lot of things that day and it would take me probably an hour or more to tell you all the things that I thought. So interesting is pretty good because it just sums up. There's a whole lot of things going on. Yeah, we just managed and looking back, it was an incredible time. Andrea can't confirm whether it was me and my baby. She helped that day, but she isn't ruling it out. It was a busy day. Andrea doesn't believe she could have done anything differently or anything more. I helped people, mothers with young children, out of the mall. I um, helped young people that were at a nearby school and I just told them to stick together and stay out of the way of buildings. And I just sat there because I was thinking, I've got to get home somehow. And I trying to get hold of my young people and my husband. So um, I couldn't really do anything more. So I was in the right place at the right time, I guess. The only other thing I probably could have done, there were, there were doctors in the medical practice nearby running further to go back, but there were just so many people there requiring a lot of help. You just It was instinctive just to go and help. Andrea doesn't seem to be the kind of person who looks back and wonders or frets over the past. The 10 years since the quake have been busy. Kids have grown up, people have passed on, and the family have had their home rebuilt. Andrea was able to keep her job as a maternity nurse and midwife, and every so often she catches up with Ken. Every um, anniversary we have a texting or a conversation, yes, and I went to see him in hospital a couple of times when he was in Burwood in 2011. Yeah, we're going to meet up again um, this year and we'll sit and have a coffee and I've got to know him a wee bit better and his family and his, um, his wife Susan. So yeah, we'll have a wee chat and life goes on. Ken Hurd spent three months in Burwood's spinal unit and was very happy to finally get home. But that's when the challenges of integrating back into the world began. I eventually got back to work in the August following the quake. Uh, got back for one hour per day, one day a week. But in my mind, that was a goal achieved. I was back at work. And basically, the first time I was there just to go and eat lunch. And quite uh, fatiguing. Um, all those sorts of things. And as time's gone by, I've um, got back into more work. I do a sedentary job in a hydraulic engineering company that um, I spent most of my life working in that trade. So now I'm doing admin and, well, mostly admin for the guys in the workshop. So nice little office in the workshop and, and that suits me. So at the moment I'm doing 20 hours a week. That's half a day every day mix it up with the breaks of the day and um, it gives me a good work-life home balance. Um, but fatigue, even after 10 years, is still quite high. Um, so it's something I have to manage. Um, medication for chronic pain. Um, so we're working on reducing that at the moment. Um, so yeah, uh, Life's a balance and um, it can be pretty good if I get it right. Ten years ago, it was a different story. Ken was barely walking when he was first interviewed and suffered from a lack of confidence. There were other complications too. When I went home from Burwood Hospital at Easter and I 
I was eager to go home just, just for a weekend, so I was, I was allowed two nights out. And then I found I didn't fit into home life. I didn't fit anywhere. I felt like a, you know, like a square peg in a round hole, just nothing fits. And got to the stage and I said to my wife, you have to take me back. And that is probably one of the hardest times for where you realise you don't fit. And, you know, you're in tears all the way back to hospital. But it's from there that you realise what you have to do, you pick yourself up and you carry on. And there's a lot of down times as well, but over the years they've got um, less frequent and you work through it and it's still work in progress. There are parts of the day of the quake that Ken doesn't remember and may never fully recall. Yes, the memories are very fragmented, um, but through the spinal unit, um, there are clinical psychologists involved and they're a very big part of, of the healing. And I learnt from that that if there was a gap that I couldn't remember or I couldn't get facts that absolutely proved that's what happened, I would um, just leave that part as blank and not fit it with a narrative that I thought that should be in there. So there are a number of blank parts through it and I'm, I'm fine with that. I just simply don't remember. What he's certain about is that 10 years on, he's still in awe of what his rescuers did for him. You don't know how to thank them for what they did that day. Um, because I know without their help, I wouldn't have survived. I wouldn't have survived um, at that point. And, you know, how do you thank a person for that? It's um, in there forever in my mind. And then there's the earthquake itself, which can never be forgotten. The presence of it is always there because of, of the pain, the fatigue, um, not being able to do things like you used to. So it's always there, but it's not until something triggers it, like um, you might be in a quiet space somewhere and you think, you know, this would not be a good place for an earthquake. Um, you see something on the telly and things are triggered from there. Um, but for me, they're, they're not negative feelings. They, they, are, they are positive. Um, like, you know, I, I know that people helped and that I'm grateful for. Because the, the first year, it was a year of firsts. Birthdays, Christmas, um, all those sorts of things. It, it was like all, it was all happening again for the first time in a new life. And then, um, then grandchildren came along um, three years later and, you know, you realise you could have missed that. There's a responsibility Ken feels to his rescuers to live a good and honest life. He gives some of his time to the Burwood Spinal Unit to say thank you. It also helps his recovery. When I was at home and about the time I got back to work too, um, I took up a 
volunteer role at the Burewood Hospital, and that was um, with the mobile shop. So doing that with another person, um, that was like having a walking frame to help me go around the hospital, and so it was something to hold on to and push. And that got me back socialising with people again. Um, it meant I had to talk to people and converse because you lose such a lot of confidence when something like this injury happens in your life. So it, it was starting again. And for the spinal unit, um, every month they do a barbecue for um, patients and family and I regularly go back and help with those. So it, it's really nice. Each year, the quake anniversary brings up emotions and some anxiety for Ken, but he knows the day will pass so he can cope. He believes it's probably only a matter of time until there's another earthquake. He says if he had to do it all again, then he'd leave a note for Sue, letting her know where he is. Or better still, just stay home. I've learnt a lot about the February earthquake myself by making this series and I had thought I knew plenty after being here when it happened and covering what seemed like hundreds of quake-related news stories in the months and years afterwards. But the thing is, everyone's story is different. They're all bits, fragments of that bigger picture. Of this huge event that's rocked and changed Christchurch. In the end... 185 people die as a result of the February 2011 earthquake. Thousands of homes are destroyed and damaged and people are left homeless, wrangling with insurers. Some people are still fighting over earthquake claims today. Others have had new homes built. QE2 has also been rebuilt, along with much of the CBD. And after a long dispute between church leaders and heritage advocates, a rebuild plan for the cathedral was finally unveiled in late 2020. I know people who've left Christchurch and come home again a few years later. I know others who've left and stayed gone. Some people have made big life changes after the quakes, and others are living much as they were before. And so again, the stories don't all end the same way, but they are all our experiences, our anecdotes and our memories. In his famous poem, The Wasteland, T.S. Eliot says, These fragments I have shored against my ruins. Now you can read that lots of ways, but perhaps it means that we use our memories and our stories, our fragments, to bolster us up against the difficult parts of life and to be able to move forward. So these first-hand accounts of the February 2011 earthquake are important. Yes, they give us an understanding of Christchurch's recent past, but they may also help to shape its future. Fragments is written and presented by me, Katie Gossett, and co-produced by myself and Justin Gregory. It's engineered by Alex Harmer and Rangi Powick, and Tim Watkin is the executive producer of podcasts and series. Thanks to Julie Hutton and Sandra Close for their work in recording interviews, and to Nate McKinnon for additional recording and video work. 
We'd also like to thank Phil Cumley, Courtney Cumley, Ken Hurd, Warren, Lisa, Andrea Robinson, Brent Williams and Sue Hurd for sharing their personal stories to create this record of the fatal Christchurch earthquake on February the 22nd, 2011. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.